0: glad that it's Great. on. Let me begin by apologizing for this delay. Uh, the reason is that so many people came, and we're delighted to see you all, that they had to be put in, a, in an upstairs room, wherever that is, and then that room had to be set up with microphones, and in, in that process, these microphones had to be turned off, and that is about as technological as I can get. Uh, anyway, good evening, and welcome to the panel on the art of literary biography. I'm very glad that you're all here. Uh, Lives of Women as Told by Women. Uh, My name is Lynn Sharon Schwartz and to my left, far left, Eleanor Langer, Judith Thurman, Carolyn Heilbrunn, and Phyllis Rose. I'm sure you all know who they are because you've all come to see them, to hear them. Several stimuli led me to the idea of this evening's panel, Uh, among them the distinguished work of the panelists themselves. It's obvious to all of us here that the last 15 or 20 years have seen a remarkable flourishing of biographies of women writers and artists, often by women biographers. I thought we might examine the reasons for this flourishing, they're not a great mystery of course, and also we might look at how women's lives are being told in new ways with a more enlightened understanding of the circumstances in which they have produced their work and look as well at how biography as a genre is being changed in the process. Uh, I'm not gonna say, I don't have to say all that again. (laughs) Did you all hear? Thank you, Alex. (laughs) Uh, The panelists are outstanding contributors and pioneers in this undertaking, both in their critical and biographical works. Uh, The first uh, specific item that sparked my curiosity about hearing a public discussion of these issues was a symposium uh, which I read in the Columbia Spectator about two and a half years ago. The symposium was about the recent decision after considerable and I, I gather dramatic discussion among the faculty uh, to allow a woman's work into the literature humanities core curriculum at Columbia which was then <laughs> celebrating its 50th year without a woman, this, it's called Lit Hum, affectionately and by those who have uh, been through it. We all have members of our families, I'm sure, who have taken this course and we have to hear about their, uh, what they have learned. Uh, in the newspaper there was an account of a meeting among professors to decide whether this revolutionary move was appropriate and what important works might have to be omitted if a woman were permitted into the, the tradition of Western civilization. When that hurdle was crossed, and I'm sure that some of you know what I'm going to say, there was apparently debate between the proponents of, guess who, George Eliot and Jane Austen. I'm sure you know, without my telling you the outlines of the debate, George Eliot had, and I'm putting these in quotes, scope, or as one professor said, massiveness, while Austen... You do have to laugh, don't you? While Austin was more, quote, narrow, on the other hand, as we know, Austin has more art. So what do you do? Uh, (laughs) Professor Carl Havdi, who was then and probably still is Director of the Humanities Program, reported, I'm quoting now, the Princess of Cleve was initially chosen, but Pride Pride and Prejudice was the final choice. There was some feeling which I shared that George Eliot's middle march would be more appropriate since it has a massiveness and cultural complexity characteristic of most of the other humanities texts. But I have no doubt that the Austen novel will work well in class. That's my favorite line. (laughs) It is obviously one of the finest novels in English. So as we know we're writers and readers, the choice of language does tell all. This set me to thinking about the nature of education, how it shapes us and our culture. These are, of course, not new questions, but they are questions that need to be re-examined constantly with each shift in social circumstances. What do we read? Who decides what we read? Who decides what history is? What literature is? What, in short, is important? By what criteria do we decide what is important? How do the decisions encourage certain voices and discourage others? Above all, and this is what is most crucial for all of us as readers and writers, How does a biased interpretation of literary history cramp the present and the future of our literature? In that same symposium, which I can't seem to get away from, was a brief essay by an instructor in the Lit Hum program, Mary Campbell, clarifying her views on why the curriculum should be open to change. She writes, it is not social justice that demands the wider variety of texts on the Lit Hum syllabus, but the facts of history, because it is from history that a canon emerges. Now, but it occurred to me, what if it is the other way around? What if it is from the canon that history emerges? And that the only way to a new view of history or to a new history is by a revised canon. True, what people call the canon has brought us to where we are and we need to know our intellectual origins. But what if, as now, we wish to take ourselves to a different place? Whom can we use? For example, what if our forms of political action and discourse had been determined not by reading Machiavelli but, say, Confucius or Lao Tzu? Shortly after this uh, reading of the newspaper, I came upon Phyllis Rose's collection of essays and reviews, Writing of Women, Essays in a Renaissance, in which she raised similar questions but in a far more sophisticated fashion. She talks about canon formation, the literary canon, and what are the criteria for entering it. She points out that the canon is formed not only by what books are included in university courses, but by reviews, essays, and biographies being written about an author. And this has to do with fashion as well as with the zeitgeist, which we hope, we try to keep them two separate things at all times. Uh, As Phyllis Rose says, when you write about the unfamous, they become famous. (laughs) Earlier this year, I read an excerpt from Carolyn Heilbrunn's book, Writing a Woman's Life, in the New York Times Book Review about women uh, finding their voices and freedom at age 50, not all, but some. I waited eagerly for her book to appear, and when it did, uh, there again I found a concern with the questions I had been interested in. Carolyn Heilbrunn examines how women's lives take shape and by extension, how women's biographies are written, in what contexts and with what presuppositions. She suggests that new narratives are needed for considering the lives of women of achievement and points to work that have been testing out these new narratives. I compiled a very partial list, just to see what they were, of biographies of women in the 1970s and 80s. And just to mention a handful, there are books about Willa Cather, Simone de Beauvoir, Charlotte Bronte, Virginia Woolf, Ivy Compton Burnett, George Sand. I have about 50 in just maybe an hour's worth of research, as well as artists like Frida Kahlo, Katha Kulwitz, Diane Arbus, and so on. In addition, there has been interest not only in major figures, but in what Diane Johnson called lesser lives. The crucial point in all these works, different as they are, is a consideration of women as the center of their own lives, not as supporting players in their own lives in which men have the starring roles. Also, an appreciation of what women did in order to do their work, of what things they have overcome. Uh, the crucial difference, as you all know, in men, it is expected, uh, it was expected that men will make something of themselves. It was not till recently expected of women, and so if you did, it required an entire different, uh, entirely different sort of effort. As one humble example uh, of the conditions being so different, I cannot think, they probably are, but I cannot think of one. A major woman writer before this century who lived in a, an ordinary conventional family situation with husband, children, and house to care for? How does a recognition of these conditions change the form of the resulting biographies? And what does this mean for the future of biography as a genre? Many critics, as well as all the panelists, have recognized how the conventional biography form has been changing. Carolyn Heilbrunn writes of biography as a, a fiction constructed by the biographer. Phyllis Rose talks about biography approaching the condition of fiction with new ways of handling character chronology perspective, and Eleanor Langer in her book on Josephine Herbst calls it, quote, the story of one life as seen by another, with both always growing and changing. Moreover, the very choice of subject is a formal statement. A biographer states for one thing that her subject matter, her subject matters, sorry, deserves to be known, has significance for history and for our own lives and times. And as in poetry or fiction, the choice of subject in biography may be coming to determine the form of the work. Eleanor Langer and Judith Thurman have written two of the most acclaimed, thorough, and incisive biographies of women writers in very different modes. Eleanor Langer's biography of Josephine Herbst includes the biographer as character. It states an explicit identification with the subject, an acknowledgement that objectivity is not possible or perhaps even desirable. Eleanor Langer identifies herself in the book as a radical and journalist of the the 60s and connects herself with Herbst, who is a radical and journalist of the 30s and 40s. Her own biases and ambivalences are sifted into the biography rather than strained out. Often her method of presentation changes to suit the material, slipping into dramatic or diary form or from past (laughs) to present tense. In Judith Thurman's biography of Isaac Dinnison, The biographer is not present in the same explicit way, but in the exhaustiveness and comprehension of Dennison's circumstances, I see a similar connection. At one point, there comes what is probably my favorite sentence, as well as one of the most revealing in the book. Judith Thurman is relating how Isaac Dennison said that her tales treat of nemesis, which Dennison calls the thread in the course of events determined by the psychic assumptions of a person. Then Judith Thurman adds, and I quote... The thread, one might say, is desire, and the needle that draws it is necessity, and thus does a tale, or a myth, or a dream get its many folds. It is the kind of sentence in form, diction, and approach that might have been written or chosen by Denison, and to me it illustrates the extraordinary intellectual and spiritual connection the biographer has forged with the subject, how firmly she fits herself into another's conceptual stance in the world. These are only a few of the very general questions that made me want to hear more. As you'll note, I have mostly questions, not answers. And perhaps these are not the questions the panelists will choose to address. In any event, I will now turn this over to them, and I hope that you will have your own questions later. And we'll begin with uh, Phyllis Rose.
1: Can you hear? Yes? Not? Okay, how's that? How's that? Good, okay. Um, I have to stand. The other panelists are not going to stand, but I have to stand because I'm going to be doing something technologically complex, which is (laughs) I am going to show slides. (laughs) We hope that this will not tax the system. I would, I would like to begin by offering a rather eccentric explanation of what literary biography is. Uh, I'm going to propose to you that the literary quality in literary biography does not inhere so much in the figure as in the approach. That is to say, you could have a literary biography of a dancer um, if the biographer were a literary biographer. Now, whether or not this subject has a connection to gender, I'm not absolutely sure. Uh, I carry in my mind a little voice that says to me over and over, you are not a real biographer. (laughs) You do not go to City Hall and track down people's marriage records. You do not go to Texas and interview all of Lyndon Johnson's first grade classmates. (laughs) How can you call yourself a biographer? And then this voice is answered by another one that says, but I do what I do. Well, that first voice that says you are not a real biographer is always male. (laughs) I don't claim that the other voice is necessarily female, but it's me. It speaks for me. And so what I want to do tonight is explain the kind of biography that I do do in the face of that other trying to explain myself to that other voice. I want to propose that not facts, but texts are the primary subject, primary material, that is, of biography. Okay, not the the little voice is always saying, go out there and dig up more facts, uh, get your spade, find out Bring me a fact, and then put it together with other facts, and you'll have a biography. Um, I'm saying instead, not facts, but texts. OK, but what is a text? Uh, what, is it, what a text is is, of course, one of the most vexed questions in literary criticism currently. Things that we were absolutely positive were texts, such as Middlemarch, Um, the ambassadors disappear in front of our eyes uh, thanks to deconstruction. They're no longer quite so obviously texts as they used to be. On the other hand, things that we did not think were texts such as clothing or a baseball game or a plate of sushi can become texts in the semiotic readings of a uh, Roland Barthes, for example, or coming at it from a different um, but equally vital tradition in current academic criticism, popular studies of popular culture, something like *L.A. Law* or *The Bob Newhart Show* could also be a text. So. Um, texts can be, what texts are these days is up for grabs, and by focusing on texts rather than facts, I'm simply giving a different name to this other tradition of biography. Okay, I would prefer to talk specifically and not theoretically, and so I'm going to talk now, I'm going to offer you the example of uh, the biography that I have just finished of Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker was a dancer. She was born in 1906 in St. Louis. She was black. She was very poor. She had a miserable childhood. She um, made her way by the time she was 13 into the black southern vaudeville circuit. By the time she was 15, she was on Broadway in Shuffle Along, the great all-black musical, all black musical comedy of the 20s, she, her part was the chorus girl on the end of the line who's so stupid that she can't keep up with the other chorus girls and is always tripping over her feet. This was a part, it was a standard part in, in, in black vaudeville, but Josephine Baker played it to perfection. She was great at crossing her eyes, at clowning, at gagging, at tripping over her feet. In 1925, she was recruited by an American living in Paris to, uh, to go to Paris with an all-black review. This woman, Carolyn Dudley, the producer, sensed that with the popularity at, the, at that time in Paris of things African, a black American review would be a great success, and it was. Not only was the show a success, Josephine Baker herself was a sensational success, and she never, um, she never went back to America. Okay, I don't want to tell you, I would love to tell you, the rest of Josephine Baker's life, but I can't do that. Uh, it, it, she worked in the resistance during World War II, she adopted 12 children, there's much more, but I just simply want to sketch in for you who she was. And to give you a sense of how far this is from Virginia Woolf, <laughs> <laughs> From, and what, you might well ask, are the materials for such a biography, and in what way can they be literary? Well, there are no diaries, no written material that's valuable, that's meaningful in the same way that Virginia Woolf's letters, um, novels, stories, diaries are valuable. Interviews are, besides being a very precarious way into somebody's inner life, for me, a very difficult thing. I just am not that good at it. Okay, so what is my material? Could we, could we have the lights down for a moment? This is some of it. <laughs> if it works. Oh... Well, could we have the lights back, please? I'm going to act it out for you. <laughs> I, was, I was going to show you a picture of Josephine Baker um, on stage, kind of like that, with, with her eyes crossed. The, OK. All right. Good. Let's try it. You think it's? (laughs) (laughs) I think you better turn the lights back on. I knew it was too complicated. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Oh, yeah. It's projecting nicely up on the floor. Don't. I really think we ought to. I think we ought to forget it. Really. Forget it. Do you all have firmly in your minds this, this wonderful picture of this terrific, you know, with her eyes crossed and good. OK. I was fascinated with this image. Forget it. No. All right. We'll try it once more. Here we go. Lights down, please. Oh, yes. <laughs> Lights up, please. We're really forgetting it. I mean, three other people have to speak after me. This is not uh, not fair. Okay, and you all said that you have this image in your mind of this woman with her eyes crossed fine. okay. I wrote a great deal about Josephine Baker crossing her eyes, and the question is what do you how do you how do you use this material? One of the first readers of a very early book draft of, of my book said what is this with the eye-crossing? This, everybody, this is meaningless. This gesture is meaningless. Everybody in my second grade class did that, and it's uh, pointless to write about it. Well, that's one possible reaction. I didn't agree with it. I didn't think everybody in my second grade class did it, and I thought it was meaningful. The first thing that, uh, the first avenue of approach that I took to, to understanding it was um, to connect this gesture, the eye-crossing, hamming gesture, with, uh, with the, a Sambo stereotype that had been used by generations of, of black comedians uh, in ways that some of my colleagues in Afro-American studies pointed out to me were much more complex than you might have thought, were a combination, both of the, these, these clowning masks were at the same time ingratiating and also subversive. Uh, so I began to focus on the ways in which this expression, the eye-crossing, could be used to, to express anger and aggression, and I was fascinated to read anything, any reference that I found to people making faces, and I found them in very strange places. For example, Sartre, in his autobiography, The Words, says that when he was... Um, uh, when he... When he, when he failed at pleasing his mother, he would go into his own room and stare in the mirror and make faces at himself. And he said this was a way, he had a wonderful way of describing it. This was his way of throwing acid on the smiles that had failed to please his mother. So again, this face-making, this seemingly insignificant gesture was connected with aggression. The most thorough explanation of, of the ways in which that functions is by Anna Freud in uh, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense. Anna Freud had a patient who was notable, had a notable tick of making faces, of grimacing. And this is what she figured out was the process behind it. The little boy was making people angry at him and was so upset by their anger that, and their anger registered on him as facial distortion he did it himself as a way of co-opting and warding off the anger so that uh, by, well, the, the term that she used was identifying with the aggressor. He would be more in control of the aggression. Well, that began to seem to me to get at the, the psychic core of Josephine Baker. That was something that I could see in other ways that she did, that is, Try to try to uh, preempt an, an antagonistic emotion, turn it into humor and claim it. Um, all right, this is not a complete account of Josephine Baker's inner life by any means, but what I just wanted to give you was an example of the way in which you could use gesture as text, the way you could read a gesture, take the body as a text. Now, having said that, um, I want to say immediately that I'm not exclusively interested in the inner life of my subjects. That what interests me, I would say primarily, are the ways in which forces that are larger than the individual, such as class, race, gender, institutions, like marriage, affect the individual life. To return to Josephine Baker's body, it seemed to me very important to talk about, to place her success in Paris in a context of uh, racial enthusiasm amongst Europeans between World War I and World War II, in a context of primitivist ideologies, colonialist fantasies. It was not just an individual success. It was a culturally conditioned success. Okay, so uh, I'd just like to close by saying that anyone who, who approaches biography with the mindset that you simply unearth and put together facts, accumulate facts, is not, to my mind, a literary biographer, no matter who they're writing about. And on the other hand, Uh, A person who thinks that even a fact is a constructed thing, uh, a, a product of choices, is a literary biographer. Thank you.
2: Is, is this one working? How about that? Is that, is that okay? okay. Um, I want to begin by saying how glad I am to be here tonight and to thank the combined forces that made it possible, mm-hmm. um, the Penn, or almost possible, I guess I should say. <laughs> um, the uh, the Penn Women's Committee, uh, the New School, and especially Lynn Sharon Schwartz, Um, These occasions take on a certain air of inevitability, and once they're announced, it seems as if they were sort of naturally bound to happen. But if you've ever put one of them together, you know that that's not so, and behind the scenes somebody has been doing a great deal of work, and that someone in this case is Lynn. Um, I want to offer a preliminary thought before plunging in. Um, A few weeks ago, I was sitting at my desk in Oregon, imagining this occasion. And I was surprised to discover that I was reminded of the early days of the women's movement and its great tradition of consciousness raising. At first, I thought this was merely associative. That is, I was returning to New York where my consciousness was raised. (laughs) But on reflection, I decided that it was in fact a matter of substance. 20 years ago, we met as women to consider our own lives, which were all we had. Now we meet as women writing about women to consider the lives which the collective labors of the first generation of women influenced by the women's movement has brought into being. But our purpose, I think, is ultimately the same, to identify and solidify our common ground. At the same time, just as women in the original consciousness raising groups were not only women, but had other attributes, any one or combination of which might have shaped their experiences, so women biographers of women are not only women, but indeed biographers. And particularly given the peculiar intimacy of the form, I think the question of what aspects of the biographical experience we can attribute to gender and which to genre is likely to remain elusive. I certainly have read many statements by male biographers of men that seem to me as apt and moving descriptions of my own experiences as I have comparable statements of women biographers of women. And of course, women's biographies of women and men's biographies of men do not exhaust the possible biographical combinations. (laughs) All we can really do, I think, um, in the spirit of the early women's movement is to look at our experience experiences as biographers and at the books themselves as honestly as we can and trust to time and the continually growing body of shared reflection to help us see what exactly the unique characteristics of women writing about women may be. Um, In that spirit then, and I must say with some genuine curiosity, um, because I had not put the questions to myself in exactly this way before, I want to say a few words about two large areas of Josephine Herbst's life where I think both her experience and my understanding of them, uh, her experiences, uh, were greatly affected by the fact that both of us were women, Um, namely her relation to that very essence of her femaleness, her body, and her relations with men. Um, Although the question of Josephine Herbst's relation to her body itself obviously has many aspects how did she move awkwardly? How did she respond to physical symptoms fearfully? The one that leapt to my mind as I thought about this evening was that most mysterious aspect of our young female existence menstruation and here I cannot resist reminding our audience particularly its young student members that 20 years ago when those of us who are old enough to be on this panel were sitting where you are The idea of such a subject being offered up for public contemplation was unthinkable. Certainly, it would have astonished Josephine Herbst. (laughs) Nonetheless, it happened. Like all of us, she got her period, and it interested her. When, (laughs) (laughs) When she was a young girl, she used to record its monthly appearance in her little diaries in a kind of private code, sick, or had to leave tea at Pieria early today. I'm um, underlining it significantly, as if she was trying to tell herself something. And when she was older, in her late 60s, she wrote a beautiful evocation of it in her unfortunately unpublished memoir, Magicians and Their Apprentices. This is, this is Josephine Herbst. I had been inducted into womanhood early. I was only 11 when the sign came. My mother had taken me to a room apart, and closing the door, spoke tenderly of the mysteries of the womb. Didn't you ever notice anything? Your older sisters? Numbly, the child shook her head, she had not. Now we were trapped in a room together, mother and daughter. Savaged by the inequalities of her wisdom, my ignorance, we eyed one another, each dreading to speak. She tiptoed delicately but firmly. The spell would be cast upon me for from three to five days every single month, until death do us part was in my thoughts, or when? I couldn't bring myself to ask. Be a little careful those days, don't go jumping around, you always leap from high places like a squirrel, keep your feet dry. (laughs) (laughs) But from what depths did a shiver convulse her face with its shadows? Why was she so austere, so pale, so meltingly tender? You're too early for this, 14 is the commoner age, but then you got your first tooth sooner than most. And she brightened, seeing hopeful signs of a precocious artfulness. Then she was telling me that this was the first signal of the body's ripening for love for children. But, indignant, she added, but you're only a child yourself. It's too soon. Her news had subdued and astonished me. I was boiling with questions to which I could not for the life of me have given tongue. I stalked away from her, rigid with self-important dignity, seething with wonderment, dread, anticipation of I hardly knew what. With that passage as a kind of beacon, and there is more, I too was interested in it. I too was 11 when the sign came. I too had an older sister whose periodic demand for privacy in the bathroom was a puzzle as well as a tease. Exercising that license to pry, which is the birthright of every biographer, I determined to look beneath her elegant prose and find out exactly what it was like in that tiny household of four sisters when Josephine Herbst had her period. It was 1903. How did she handle it practically? What did she use? How did it affect what she was able to do? Not finding such information in her papers, I wrote to Kimberly Clark, manufacturers of COTEX. <laughs> this, is by, this is what biography is in part about. Was there cotex in 1903? No, about 19 or 1910 or 1911 I think they said. No cotex. what then? Rags, I finally realized, washed by hand and folded away with the family linens to await the next visitation of grandma as she and her sisters also used to refer to it. So how the rags were secured, if at all, I never did manage to learn. A good deal both of the spirit of Josie's passage and my own further inquiries found their way into my book, albeit in an abbreviated fashion. Would a male biographer have pursued the matter? (laughs) That would depend, of course, on the particular male biographer, but I would guess probably not. A male biographer might have been driven, as I was, by stolen images of his sister struggling with her clumsy apparatus to wonder what forms the struggle might have taken in other eras. He too might have prowled his mother's drawers, mystified by the cylindrical cardboard objects that seemed to go in and out, but had no other apparent purpose than concealing a wedge of cotton attached to a string. But he would certainly not have been plagued by the embarrassing mystery of how it was possible, aged 11, to leave the house one morning wearing a sanitary napkin to bike to school and arrive at school without it. (laughs) One of the great unsolved questions of my own adolescence, (laughs) and one which gave me a lot of feeling for the possible dilemmas of Josephine Herbst. Another area where I think my perceptions and ultimately my book were much affected by the fact of our common gender was the very large area of Josephine Herbst's relations with men. Here, as in most aspects of her life, Josephine Herbst was a complicated subject. She had a long marriage, which though it ended disastrously, nonetheless reflected a deep emotional tie. Um, Most of her lovers, though not the two who were most important after her marriage, were men. She was surrounded by men more than women all her life, and indeed, in the end, her salvation, uh, to the extent that she was saved, came about largely through the dedication of her male friends. And yet, something was deeply troubling in those relationships. I fairly writhed to see, to think how fine it would have been if I had been a boy, she wrote her mother when she was about age 20. As I looked at her in later life, it seemed to me she was writhing still. The clearest example of this is perhaps a letter that she wrote to uh, her then close friend, Catherine Ann Porter, at the threshold of her involvement in the radical movement of the 1930s. Listen, I must write you a long letter about the Scottsboro case, the miners' strike and revolution she began in the summer of 1930. But what she actually wrote was, speaking of the latter, a few gents, including Herr Herman, her husband, John Herman, and some of our well-known talk-it-overs such as Edmund Wilson, uh, Malcolm Cowley, Mike Gold, decided to meet to talk things over, over beer as you might know. I being also an ardent talk it over, longed to partake in this wordy feast, in fact showed a good deal of longing for same, but the same gentle stay in your place which may or may not be the home which you and I received uh, on another occasion, I received now when the new and proposed talk fest was projected. Mr. Herman departed for thence, full of a masculine importance you and I will never know, alas, and came back somewhat boozy, but so far as I could see, with not one idea the smarter. (laughs) Another meeting was proposed for which I continued to long to partake, but said nothing. No, even urged the gristmill to go and lap up his masculine delights along with the beer. He did and returned a sadder and wiser man, forced to report that very little in the way of conversations had been accomplished. Malcolm left in the midst without explanations. A smart man, say I, and just what I would have done, but Herman stuck it out with the beer. All in all, the conversations peed out along with the beer, and there has been no more of such. I told Mr. Herman that as long as the gents had such bourgeois reactions to women, they would probably never rise very high in their revolutionary conversations, but said remarks rolled off like water. This letter gave me considerable pause. It was funny, wasn't it? Or wasn't it? How did Josie actually feel about it? How could Josie possibly have felt about it, I wrote. The men in question were men she had known at least since her return from Europe in 1925 and in some cases earlier, and she was involved with them both as writers and friends. Not only had they read her stories, argued with her about literature, and solicited her contributions to their magazines, Both in Erwinna and in Connecticut earlier, they had eaten her cooking, drunk her liquor, and slept in her beds. Now here they were at the beginning of a new political epoch, reducing her to that very caricature she had sworn all her life to avoid, John's wife. How did Josie actually feel about that? She hated it, naturally. She was furious about her exclusion. She was jealous of her luck, of their luck, and if she was able to get a good letter or two out of it now and then, as she sometimes managed to do, it was never really adequate revenge. If she had ever for one instant attempted to communicate to any of her male companions the true measure of contempt with which she sometimes privately viewed their actions, it is hard to say whether she or they would have been more surprised. Um, There followed in the the book itself, um, a further analysis leading toward the observation that whether the truest characterization of her relationships with men most of the time would be hypocritical or ambivalent, it was difficult to say, in ending with the conclusion that she was essentially trapped. Like the work songs of prisoners or the dancing of slaves, Josie's letter to Catherine Ann is essentially an entertainment of the powerless, I wrote, given her belief in the basic injustice of things and in their irremediable nature, what better consolation was there than a joke? Now, would, could, a male biographer have analyzed Josie's humor in that way? Again, I have to doubt it, for that interpretation was powered by my personal knowledge of the varieties of ingratiation still required in the literary world of my own day, including the very ingratiations required to write a biography, coupled with my biographical knowledge that, for better or worse in both cases, Certain poses that came rather naturally to me were next to impossible for Josephine Herbs. The male biographer, presumably less of a hypocrite, would not have had the benefit of my constant inner comparisons. I want to make one final comment. Um, while these confessions of a female biographer, so to speak, have intentionally emphasized the female, we are equally importantly, as I said at the outset, biographers. While the female-female biographical connection offers many satisfying possibilities, it also involves some methodological risks, most particularly the false identification of our subjects with ourselves. Contrary to the impression I might be leaving here tonight, biography is not only an emotional uh, but an intellectual exercise. How to avoid the pitfalls while at the same time fully indulging in the pleasures is one of the tasks confronting any woman biographer of another woman today. Thank you.
3: Well, uh, it was Shaw who said those who can do, those who can't teach. I haven't written a biography, I've just written a book on how to write one. Um, So I really don't know what I'm doing here. Um, Not having ever tried it and having a lot of ideas, including a great many, uh, which I'd like to take up with the two who've already spoken. Uh, It doesn't seem very fair, but that's life. Anyway, I'd like to uh, say that in a sense my biography is being written right in this room tonight. Uh, Lynn reads about this fight at Columbia, where I work, and I may say I was part of it, and it really was quite wonderful. Uh, It has all changed now, to a great extent, uh, but the arguments at the time uh, were unbelievable and I just want to say that that was my life too. So were discussions of menstruation. When I was on the Executive Council of the Modern Language Association, we used to get outraged tirades from the old professors who were watching their world fall to pieces around them. And I remember one year they said that there were no seminars on Chaucer and 11 on menstruation. (laughs) Uh, I might also add, in connection with uh, the life of Josephine Herbs, that the early, the early years of my academic life were spent in the exclusive company of men who never heard a word I said or even knew I was there. Um, I have, however, lived long enough to have a wonderful revenge. <laughs> I, I don't think they admire me much, but they sure listen. <laughs> Now the question that comes up, I think that's very important here, <clears throat> is, uh, is one that, um, ha- that has already been raised, the whole question of facts and texts and so on. Uh, <clears throat> I really don't, I do think that the conditions around us may in a way mean a bit more than the gender of the biographer. For example, um, I think a man might now be aware of some things, or at least able to discuss them, that he couldn't long ago. uh, Example, the sessions at the MLA. Of course, he would not know exactly what it was like, but uh, that seems to me less of a difference than the atmosphere you're living in. I don't mean to contradict what you say. I mean merely to add to it. Uh, I think Edel's biography of James is a very good example here. He wrote it in five volumes and then he put it together in one and all sorts of things he was unable to discuss in the five volumes uh, all were discussed in the one, primarily, of course, James's uh, homosexuality and a number of other things. So biography depends a great deal uh, on what you can say and what you're allowed to say. You used to be allowed to say anything about men except their sex lives uh, in biographies. You were never allowed to say anything about women. (laughs) And this is really true if you read biographies before the last two decades. And that was what was really the matter with them. We didn't know, um, you mentioned the questions to which, she could not give tongue. But that was destinies. And we had nowhere to look, certainly not in biographies of women. Uh, as I purported, I never could find any except the volume mysteriously called Women Who Did. <laughs> I think what we need is wholly new stories about women, just as perhaps we need new stories about race and what it meant, uh, what that meant, as in, uh, as in the case of Josephine Baker. I think we're getting very close to discovering new stories, and that's why I agree that. It is fiction we write, it is a novel. We make it up. We write a novel of the life we're writing about. And that's, I think, why it is very important that we create lives for other young women to live, as well as to try to interpret the lives that have been lived. Because I think unless something has been written, we can't really live it. And I point out to you, since George Eliot was mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, how she was able, uh, in a certain sense, to live an eccentric life for her time, but she couldn't write about it. She couldn't imagine it, and neither could anybody else. And that is why biography is so extremely important, I think, and particularly of women, uh, to present this. It's literary biography because it is, as Barth says, a novel that dare not speak its name. Uh, And it is that. And that is why biographies are always rewritten, again and again and again, often without new facts. The biographer will say in front, I had access to a wonderful new collection of letters somebody found, but that isn't what's new. What's new is the vision of that life. And that's, That's why I think that biography is so important um, to women now. Uh, And that it's so important that new stories be told so that young women can hear them and live them and know there are other lives out there that have nothing in the world to do with making a man the center of your life, waiting for your physical changes to come upon you, to tell you what to do, nothing with all of this. There may be marriage, but it will be a new marriage. There may be love, but it will be a new love. And that is what, um, what I would hope uh, we would all see. And I think we choose subjects, we who, they who write biographies, uh, which allow us to do that. I haven't yet heard of a feminist who's written a biography uh, of Nancy Reagan. <laughs> and I think that is, uh, that is part of what it's all about. Now I feel the great need of hearing from you if you want to ask them uh, questions because I can't talk to you out of my experience except to this extent. I decided the year before last to offer a graduate course in biography in, at Columbia. <clears throat> it was a seminar and each we read a great deal about it but each student was required to pick someone and either rewrite that biography in a kind of essay or else write a very reasoned critique of the already existing biographies. I think it was the most exciting course I ever taught, probably because I learned so much. But because we weren't treading old paths, we all really had to think and we all really had to wonder about what went on. Uh, And that's all I have to say. The
4: audience and the interest in literary biographies and the work of women writers has changed so vastly since I published the bio- my biography of Dennison in 83 that when my, my editor called me to say that the book was unexpectedly on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list, and he said, but I looked at the title and I thought for a minute it was Isaac Dennison, the diet of a storyteller.
5: Um, <laughs>
4: I, have, I have often been accused of selflessness in relation to Denison. And it always surprises me because, in fact, writing the book was such a struggle of wills um, and, it, in a way, a feminist paradox, because the role of the biographer as I inherited it—I didn't know anything about writing a biography when I began to work— uh, resembled the, the, the role of a traditional woman. It was a nurturer, a nurse, a mother, an interpreter, a translator, the sympathetic other through the sort of the circuit Um, her life was passed through me and sort of jumbled up and and reinterpreted and sort of reformed but where was I in this process and it was a very long very painful process of seven years and one of tremendous rebellion for me uh, a rebellion that I I actually had great difficulty resolving Um, and in the end I thought that I had been um, not cruel and not harsh certainly but but not the nurturing, tender, selfless biographer that I was sometimes thought to be. And in fact, when the book came out, Time Magazine decided to do a piece on biography, and I was sort of flattered to be included with, with five other very distinguished biographers. But I realized, the young woman who came to interview me, I realized that I had been pegged in the editorial meeting as the one who identified with her subject. And all of the questions were sort of geared at getting me into the corner and uh, explaining my my terrific mystical identification with my subject, and I said, but I actually didn't. I went through all kinds of stages with her. I rejected her. Uh, I imposed ideologies on her. I I held her up to impossible standards, and when she didn't meet them, I cast her down and trampled on her. Um, and, And she took this down. She thought this was very interesting. It certainly contradicted her expectations. But she said, sort of timidly towards the end, well, couldn't you give me one example of how you identified with your subject? <laughs> so I thought, and I said, well, OK, um, I always wore a fairly recherche French perfume called Fracas. And I discovered in the course of my researches, I actually didn't have to write away to Piguet to find out the name of the fragrance, <laughs> but I discovered that uh, Denison, by some strange co- coincidence, always wore Fracas and loved it. And um, Time magazine came out. Thurman identified with his subject so deeply that she wore her
6: perfume to evoke her. (laughs)
4: Um, I've I've searched for for a good definition of literary biography for a long time. I actually don't know what it's about. It's sort of a a nightmare when it's over and you're glad you have survived. But um, a friend of mine, a Danish Danish biographer, um, once said, biography is the art of tracking the process of individuation to the point at which it fails. And I thought that was a marvelous definition because it emphasizes the failure. And um, I think that, that many of us, especially in the last 15 years, have looked to the lives of women to provide examples of courage and heroism. And, um, solidity, and, and talent, and exceptionality, and defiance, and all kinds of heroic qualities. Um, and of course, there has been an inevitable disillusionment. Um, but in fact, every life, fa- the, the process of individuation fails in every life. And women have for too long been held to, um, and have held themselves accountable to an impossible standard of perfection. I think it's time to get rid of our perfectionism or examine it more closely. Uh, so that this, this definition gave me a latitude and a way of thinking about biography that, was, uh, that made it somewhat easier. And also, um, it, it made it more of a, of, a, of a mystery. It gave me more detachment. Uh, I was also able to reflect that biography is itself a process of individuation that must fail. And at some point, you must admit that you cannot do the person justice. You cannot be the good mother. Uh, you can only be the good enough biographer. <laughs> uh, I would, since we have run so, uh, so late tonight, I'd like to throw the floor open to questions or to, to Lynn, and to thank you all for showing up in such wonderful numbers. <laughs>
0: Thank you to all four of you and now is the time when we would like very much to uh, to hear your questions Uh, just uh, raise your hand as in school and i will see you Uh, but uh, please do uh, say your name when you say your question are there any questions (laughs) yes why don't you stand up and and yell out your name and your question and so on Why don't, oh, Why don't you repeat the question? Yes, I, I will repeat the question. And not everybody
5: here. So All right.
0: The question is, how much of, of a biographer's material is anecdotal and how much is is repeated? I'm sorry, what was your word? It's transliterated. And, especially, and in addition, just uh, look at this question in the light of the fact that some subjects may still be alive.
2: Uh,
0: any of you can answer that.
2: <laughs> well, the, the answer is, is somewhat in the question and obviously depends a great deal. The, the period in which your subject lived um, really controls the kind of information that you have available. I suppose with some characters who lived a long time ago but were yet um, the objects of a lot of contemporary discussion, you, you, you find sort of the equivalent of anecdotes, although they're, they've been hallowed along the way, into something else.
5: What? Many people. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Ellie, do um, do um, w- why don't you question yes, the, you. the
2: second part of the question? Is that in the in the case of a subject like Josephine Herbst, who um, who had many many of whose contemporaries um, were still. Available or alive at the time I was working, <laughs> how do you how do you balance? I suppose those two kinds of sources. And um, in, in my own case, it, it was a great boon to me that those people existed. Many of many of Josephine Herb's friends, most of them, in fact, were were very literary and very perceptive and had a great deal to say about her that. Um, had a kind of life to it that the physical materials of her life didn't have. And yet at the same time, um, I remember a moment very clearly when maybe my, my biography took 11 years to write and Judith's and my experience are not uncommon. In fact, they're even on the short side for biography. There was some point, maybe five or six years into my research when I was talking with a friend of Josephine Herbst and he said, Josie was such and such, and I said to myself, no, she wasn't that way, she was some other way, and I know how she is better than her friend did because I've really seen more, and I've studied more, and I've thought about her more in a different way, and that was sort of the moment of independence in, in uh, relation to the sources anyway. There were other struggles for independence, such as the kind that Judith is talking about.
0: Other questions? Yes, is somebody back there? Yes.
4: The question was, what led us to choose our subjects? That's probably... Uh, well, mine was commissioned. I didn't want to do it. I tried to get out of it.
5: That's
4: a good answer. <laughs> I just have one thing to say to the audience I, that I forgot to say, which is that i was been very depressed about the future of biography because, of course, nobody writes anymore. But someone just lent me a fax machine, and this is going to change biography in the 21st century because of course it's now fun to write and send things to people and there's going to be a written record. So facts away is, is what I <laughs> hope everyone
0: will do. Phyllis, do you want to answer that?
1: Well, that, that's a question that I personally live in dread of. How did you get the idea for this book or what led you to this book or, or what uh, do you see in Josephine Baker that, that appealed to you? But I think I can say, in retrospect, there's always... There's always something that I wanted from the people that I wrote about and it wasn't always clear to me at the time that I chose them what that was. Um, but I do think that, that in each of my books there's been some personal tie and by that I don't mean identification, I certainly couldn't ident- presume to identify either with Josephine Baker or with Virginia Woolf or with the people in parallel lives. Uh, but there's some sort of of um, psychic nourishment that you're getting from the subject, or else how would you get through this incredibly tedious and time-consuming years-long work that one undertakes? There is some payoff.
0: I want to just add a note about the identification because I have now become one of those people who assume that Judith Thurman had this strong identification with her subject. But th- there is a difference. There's a, a, an emotional identification, I guess, where you begin to feel that uh, this can happen when you write fiction that you are that person and you forget who you are and where you end and where the other person begins. And I, I don't think that's necessary, but I think when you, I, I imagine, I also have never written uh, a biography, so there, here I'll plunge ahead. Uh, there's a kind of intellectual uh, identification or an identification of sensibility where well, you do know the subject so well, probably, that you can imagine what she or he would think or maybe feel at a certain moment, of how he would respond. Anyhow.
2: I wanna make one comment about this. It's important to remember that because biography takes so long, the initial attraction to the subject and what happens to that attraction um, over the course of research, as well as the course of writing, is, is a story in itself. And I think it would be very unusual for someone to end up with the same position. Um, in relation to the subject as, as he or she began with? Um, I, I think that biography, pretty much all fiction, all
4: literature, is about merging and separation, or as my three month old son puts it.
5: <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs>
0: that won't get on the tape. <laughs> uh, there was a question over there, yes. i you've done your subjects them now. I'll repeat the question. Uh, what do you do with your subjects when you're done with them? That is when the when the book is finished. Do you still uh, feel them around, live with them? Is that it? What, how do they
1: uh, take part in Let me your life? Okay. Um, first of all, there's a curious time lag in writing a book because the book doesn't come out until usually a year after you've finished with it. And people uh, then at that point start asking you about your subject and uh, you get requests to talk about the subject and so on. And so it's always a little bit after you've, you've already finished with the person then, and I think that's very difficult. I find it very difficult because my mind is usually on the next thing, um, but I have to bring myself back and get get reinterested. Then I find that after some years go by, um, I have another, an interest, an, another pleasant relationship, which is that of an old friend. I think, oh yes, Virginia Woolf. <laughs> I know something about her. <laughs> so that too changes with time. Does anybody else
0: want to answer that that question could apply to anyone or do you do you want the answer okay to largely in my case too very well
4: well Dennison was very persistent I tried to get rid of her but she came back the movie the video <laughs> <laughs> um, so it took me a while um, and and then I finally stopped smoking and that was it <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes
0: Good, that was pretty loud. Did you all hear that? Okay, thank you for being so loud. Uh,
5: Can Carol?
3: Carolyn? why don't you? Uh... Well, I've been sitting here realizing that I am a biographer. <laughs> right, because you're a novel. <laughs> um, of men. Uh, I wrote a biography of a fa- family called the Garnet family uh, which was uh, Richard Garnett, who helped found the British Library, Edward Garnett, a great editor, Constance Garnett um, who translated the books from the Russian, and um, the, gr- the grandfather of this whole lot. I wrote it so long ago I just had to renew the copyright.
5: <laughs>
3: but what, what is interesting is that it was only the chapter on Constance Garnett, and this is 1961 that is still alive. Now, it is true, a man in England wrote a book on Edward Garnet and lifted a great part of what I'd said, <laughs> but I attribute that more to laziness than anything else. Um, I, uh, I somehow understood her, but I didn't choose the subject because of her. I chose it because the whole family did something that enabled other people. They were wonderful editors. They. Um, Constance Garnett virtually changed English literature by the translation of all the Russian novels. Uh, Richard Garnett in founding the library, where that is the British Museum collection. I also wrote a biography of Christopher Isherwood who appealed to me because, well, I don't know. Uh, It is hard to say. He appealed to me very, very much. And it certainly would not have occurred to me to write about a woman at that time because I didn't have the language. I think women are going eventually to be able to write biographies of men that are wonderfully understanding. But the men are gonna have to be pretty special. And I think the perfect biographer will be waiting when the perfect man Appears. Um, uh, as As to men writing about women, I think it only fair to say, as I say in my book, that their biographies of women before this current woman's movement were far superior to women's biographies of women. Women seem to have internalized the anxiety, the guilt, the fear, and so forth of being a woman and they would become extremely frightened uh, of what they would find, whereas the men, when they wrote biographies of women, seemed to be able to project onto the woman their own desire of quest, their own desire of adventure, their own desire of unconventionality. I think at the moment we women should keep on writing biographies of women and trying to understand that, but I suppose ultimately we all hope for if not a heterosexual heaven, an androgynous one. (laughs)
2: You know, another aspect of that um, might be, well, it obviously is, who the male subject is and why you would be drawn to writing about him. And the women that we've been talking about so far have an interest which is in part subjective. Um, when we are interested in their interior experiences and that's often what they've written about, but I'm thinking of Doris Kern's biography of Lyndon Johnson, for, for example. Um, and there are men um, who, who one would be interested in for other reasons than their in interior lives. And in in those cases, um, you would be, well, I think, I think the biographies would have a different focus. Whether you could make the imaginative leap where necessary, I don't know. I mean, Lynn could maybe talk about that because isn't that similar to to the problems with, Male characters in novels. In in novels, I I found
0: that the well, there there's a duality uh, in writing about men or making up men. First of all, you have to remember that uh, apart from all our differences, I I try to think of men as exactly the same. That you know, you start from the human condition and mortality and these pretty basic things. So I try to remember when I think of how would they react to this or that. Well, they're the same as I am and, and the, their maleness does not enter into every particular situation. Then there are the scenes where I have to say, they're totally different, so I have to take what I know and feel and just turn it around and, uh, and look at it. So I, I don't have a clear answer. I, the, the, the trick is knowing when they're the same and when they're different. LAUGHTER
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I just realized that there is something I would like to add to this, which is the whole biographical subject of marriage. Uh, it is probably the most unwritten about and ununderstood subject, I think, in the lives um, of women. Uh, second only to women's love of women, which um, I think, in a number of years, is going to be a lot more clearly explicated than marriage, which still is hidden among a great many forests. Uh, the The remarkable marriages that interest me are the marriages of men to what I guess, for lack of a better word, we would have to call outstanding women, or the marriages that somehow are equal, not because he does the dishes once a week, Um, I think the exploration of how a man and woman, if they want to grasp that old form of life, can live together uh, is still very, very far from understood. And if we look at the various subjects that my companions have written biographies on, you can see what an unsuccessful uh, endeavor it's been. So I, uh, marriage, I mean. Uh, So um, uh, I do think that is one place where... We have got to begin to be honest. Virginia Woolf, of course, said uh, of Leonard that I never write of my feeling for him, I who am willing to write of anything. And I think that is, is something that does mark a great many women who have, um, who have had good marriages. You can probably count them, of course, on uh, the fingers of both hands. Well.
4: Well, there's, I guess what what you're saying is that we need a new marriage of of biographer and subject, too, and new rules for that, Um, sort of Sadie Hawkins' day in the biographical field. (laughs) Um, But there's there's another another factor, which is that editors and advances and people who assign book reviews, I keep getting books, women's books, to review, and I sort of, Said, well, I'll, I'm happy to write about men and what men write, and sort of doesn't seem to be forthcoming. So, there's, there's you're, you're assigned, you're expected to write about what you've written about, and there is that, that problem, too.
0: Ted, you had a question. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I called on somebody. Will you, you will be next, okay? But we have one down here first.
5: <coughs> yeah, I've-
1: Us, do you Did everybody hear the question?
0: Oh, let me repeat the question. The question was uh, how feminism as an ideology affected the writing of each of these biographies and how feminism is a real force in women's writing and how it, how it worked and how it operated in each of the, these books, is that okay?
1: I think first of all, feminism is important in the choice of the subject. A lot of these books would not have been written had there not been a women's movement. And I don't mean by that only, that we wouldn't have had the idea, but that people wouldn't have been interested in publishing them or in in reading them. So that, I think, is the most, the most important thing. I really don't think that what you say about a person is as important or counts as much, in a way, for the feminist contents as the fact of writing the book. Um, the, for example, um, a wonderful biography, Jean Strauss's biography of Alice James, which has nothing particularly feminist about it, except the fact that it was written. And that's an extraordinary event. It would not have been written 25 years ago. Uh, second, I would say that for me, um, feminism has has produced uh, not so much a set of, of uh, beliefs or arguments or polemics that I want to make, but an interest in the way... Um, certain forces have affect individual lives, starting with gender, and then moving out to different kinds of, of things like class, like race, like the institution of marriage. Eleanor, do you want to answer that too?
2: Yeah, um, one one aspect of that question that may not be as obvious as as some. I mean. There's some feminist inspiration probably behind a lot of the biographies which are being written now. Feminism also poses a certain danger to uh, biographies of of women in that um, you have to resist the temptation or you have to resist the opportunity which is so present to apply backwards in time some kind of ideological. Um, thinking ideological grid which does not in fact apply to your subject and in a subject like Josephine Herbst who who really was not a feminist um, I I had to try especially hard to to imagine her experience without feminism and try not to color my interpretation of her What, what I was interested in 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 Josephine Herbst was what it felt like to be Josephine Herbst and I was always trying one way or another to get that. Had I applied feminist ideas, I, it would have been an obstacle.
0: Mm-hmm. Do either of you want to address that? Well, Dinesen
4: was also uh, it was a simil- different case, but she, she wrote with the voice of, a, of an 18th century roué, male roué, in some respects. But when I started doing the research on her life, I discovered that as a young woman, she grew up in a feminist family, and the Scandinavian Feminist history is very rich and very interesting, and in the 1870s and 80s there was a there was a powerful feminist movement in Scandinavia. And I discovered all this, and her aunt and mother had been part of it. Um, and her letters, as a young woman, showed much more commitment, much more, more much more um, awareness and commitment to feminism than than her fiction did later on. And, and that was that was astounding to me. And In fact, she lost a certain altitude. She lost a certain willingness or ability to risk, to take risks, which was a source of disappointment to me when I was working on the book. Um, I, I wished, had she only been able to write with that same freedom um, in relation to convention, uh, I, I, it was interesting what she might have written. Um, but the the Denison book started out—Ms. used to have a, co- a department called Lost Women, and Denison was at that stage a lost woman. Mm-hmm. so. She, the book was very much rooted in the in the 70s
3: rediscovery of women writers. I don't agree with any of that.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: of course, you can't. Josephine Herbst, for instance, wasn't a feminist. Uh, that was her problem. There weren't any. She was in a world of men. But what I think feminism has to do there is to look underneath the text and underneath the life, which you so marvelously did. So I feel that putting it your way is is to, to uh, oversimplify what you did or what the problem is. The texts of all these things are particularly um, exactly learning to read texts. Now, you say... Uh, I mean denison' stories have been used now by feminists again and again uh, is the most the blank page the blank uh, whatever it is uh, picture page sheet, the sheet um, as, as extraordinary expressions, but it does take a certain amount of literary technique and feminist awareness to understand that, so that I do think that though you't you don't blame someone for not being a feminist uh, uh, obviously, but it is that knowledge which makes that biography so meaningful. I, I really, I really do, think, uh, do think that that's true and, and I think both of you did it.
5: Uh,
0: there was a question in the balcony and I have neglected the balcony, so please go ahead. The question was directed uh, to Eleanor Langer and it was uh, referring to the last few sentences of her talk in which she said that false identification with a biographer's uh, subject is a, is a danger and that we should avoid that pitfall and Eleanor was asked to elaborate a bit.
2: Well, let me relate that question to the point that Carolyn just made. Um, there are many, many ways that you you can be false to the experience of your subject. And I suppose we're all guilty of some of them. Um, what I was thinking of in that particular comment was um, was more psychological. I, I was thinking that as as I tried to understand Josephine Herb's experience, I, I had to constantly be on, on my own guard against thinking, as some, somebody else talked about this earlier, thinking that she would have... Experience well. Actually, Lynn was talking about it in relation to men that she would have experienced it as I would, or indeed, that I would have experienced it as as she would. You know that it and it's. You can't. You you have to use yourself as a means for understanding, but somewhere you have to be aware of the line between yourself and your subject and realize you you lived in a different time. You had a different family history, you had different opportunities in life. You know, Whatever the power that your subject exerts on you through literary means or other means, um, you can't completely fall, fall prey to them or, or you would be really writing about yourself. And I think part of the, the interesting tension in a biography is to, to manage to write about your subject, I mean to manage somehow to transcend yourself in order to be able to write about your subject, admittedly, incompletely, um, as every biography is. But I think, I think I would say, in a sense, that the feminist ideology issue is a similar one. You have to be able to use it, but, but you can't let it dominate. So they work in a similar way. Yes. Betty,
0: would you like to get up and speak?
6: I would like to keep a little issue with this right. uh, about the question of feminism and the question it might be to ask. Uh, I don't think it's a question at all of imposing an ideology on a lot of doing it, especially in an anachronistic, you know, uh, you know, imposing uh, <laughs> an ideology of feminism again. But there is some lifting of scales. own life and writing a script of her own life, how does she get beyond the script that has been given to her when just in terms of the man's story, you know, the, 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 the love, the marriage, the mother, but the, uh, one, one of you or someone else, or a wonderful study a few years ago about how the reason women are so addicted to the romance, to the love, is that um, it's the only story that woman Subject, I have been fascinated in this 10, 15 years to see women novelists, uh, what they were called feminist novelists, first they would begin by this big rebellion against that story, you see. And they'd struggle with it, and they'd struggle, they try to get out of it, and they try to make another story. And you were dealing with this idea, you know, a story that wouldn't somehow be the other to man, but you, you, in you Book about running women's lives. You, you keep, any connection I tonight, you say, what would the woman be like who would be able to write a different kind of story of her own life? What would the, the man be like who would be able to write a different kind of story of his own life that is possible when what we might call female principles and values are being liberated in women and we hope in men or values that have been considered adventures, quest, search, purpose, that had been considered only open to man, is now open to women. Now, I think that when you do, the woman makes the quest and the man uh, has a very major part of his life, he gets struggle with his macho, his tenderness, whatever. This is a, a, whatever, when we see our own lives other lives, but it doesn't mean that the material of human life changes, but there's something that, that, that changes and it isn't the same as imposing ideology of the subject matter.
0: Thank you. I hope you all heard Betty Friedan because I would be, it would be difficult to paraphrase, but thank you. Uh, does anybody want to comment or answer? Please do. Uh, said, Judith? Yes, you
5: yeah.
4: um no I'm, I'm taking it in it's uh, um, getting beyond the old stories um, i i I have to actually have to think about it there There've got to be new stories out there. My first reaction was to think that that fiction and biography is about relations the The notion of freedom uh is a false one actually to all of literature. It is all about relations it's it's a network it's a web uh if you lift your if you sort of break it by looking away the 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 web is weakened and it collapses um, so it, it doesn't it's you know it's not only it's kind of finding new model the the models are all there they don't have to be reinvented, they just have to be
0: experienced in a different way. I think actually the, the uh, Isaac Dennison book, or, or her life, uh, even before the book, uh, was, was a new story. <laughs> even had there not been the book, there would have been the life, wouldn't there? Uh, we tend to forget that when we're writers. So. Dennison is actually, it's an interesting case in point, because she
4: felt that she derived her strength from her identification, from her father. And in fact, she was afraid of looking at how of the importance of her mother, she was afraid that it would weaken her, that it would sap her strength. She was, even more than that, she was afraid of looking at how angry she was at her mother. And I think that, that that's something else, that's, a, that's generally a taboo subject, it still is for many women and it's something that, that needs to be, um, be explored. Because the intimacy is so, is so great, the dependence is so great, um, and I think that... that the next generation of biography will bring greater freedom to that subject.
0: Mm. Well, yes, and, but her, her life itself was not the, the standard, the narrative. You know, she didn't grow up and get married and have babies and, and go, go ahead and uh, overcome difficulties to do her work. She had, her life had a very different shape. Uh, There's a very delicate relation between the life and how it's told, and these affect each other. These move back and forth. Uh, she, she was lucky in that way. She,
4: had, she kept
0: getting reborn. Yes, she had several lives. Uh, when one failed, she undertook another. And many women may have had, uh, but I think that when, we, when you approach a woman's life with the form already there, you tend to see what you're looking for, as, as sociologists find when they do research also. yes. Uh, the question is uh, what consciousness of the audience the readership uh, does the biographer have while writing
1: and how does that influence the writing uh, oh i'll take that uh, since you mention the uh, specifically in parallel lives the comparison of dickens reception in america to the reception of the beatles i cannot resist telling you that a, a person who's Taste I have the greatest respect for. After she read *Parallel Lives*, said, "That's a that's a pretty good book. Everything except that bit about the Beatles." <laughs> so um, you uh, can't sort of think about. Every, you can't think about an audience, I don't think, at every moment. I mean, you please some people with some things and other people with others and maybe some with nothing that you write. But I suppose um, uh, I have constructed an ideal reader who I write for. I'm no longer, it's so internalized at this point that I'm not even aware of it. You know, maybe it started out being my sister at one point, but now it's just, it's just the process of writing. It's the other side of the process of creating. Does
0: anyone else wish to answer that? Let's take the question. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: I have
5: question.
0: The question is, uh, as biographers, uh, to what degree do you permit yourselves to be judgmental? Do you ever scold? Isn't this a question we face every day in every way? So uh, how about as biographers? I, I can...
4: Do you, do you? Yeah, No. I'm a terribly rigid, judgmental person. I'm always slapping myself for, for, for this terrible um, impatience that comes out uh, towards my subject. and it, it takes a long time to get over it. And to, to find a sort of um, neut- neutrality, I think is the right word, uh, where I'm still engaged, but I'm not so fired at something that um, that my discernment is blurred, and that just that takes a long time. That sort of comes towards the end of something when I when I begin to, to stop judging. Well, you know, it enters the work, and you sort of um, you exterminate it. At the end, you sort of spray all the corners and hope
0: <laughs> it. Well, I, I must say that in reading the biographies of the people here, I saw a lot of judgments. I, I, I felt impatience and sometimes, a, a why are you doing that? I felt that in actually both of your books. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I think judgmental, to be judgmental is fine, because how else will, you, will civilization move ahead if somebody doesn't make a judgment once in a while? And if you uh, see one roach, there are a hundred others yeah, I mean, you really can't help it. The thing is to look nice while you're doing it, and then everybody thinks you're not judgmental. You're
3: not anyway, Carolyn. Well, um, I, I have felt kind of like the odd woman out all evening, and I realize I am now that I am in another way because I don't know if I'm the only one at this table who's been the subject of several biographies. But believe me, it's a fascinating experience. Um, and a history in lit major at Harvard this year, wrote her honors thesis on my life, it was a revelation. Um, I think uh, all, it, it, it emphasizes to me the necessity of, uh, of the saying that a, it is a fiction. It is the life the biographer had to write. And it is what she or he sees there. And I think there may be a misconception that since Lynn began by speaking of the canon and of Lit Home at Columbia. And at the time we tried to fight it, everybody said, but what do you mean? We're just teaching the great works. You want to put in ideology. There's no ideology in what we're teaching. <laughs> and the point, of course, was that it was so accepted that they didn't realize this was white, male, upper middle class, privileged ideology. Uh, to which the Dean of Columbia College answered, well, all right, what we're teaching is the history of oppression. <laughs> well. We think of many famous biographies by men of men, I think of, Bates of Keats and and, and Elman of Joyce, and those, too, are not objective biographies. They are the biographies that those men had to write about those people. So I think it's important not to think that because women are writing biographies, because they're feminists, because they're identifying, that their biography is any more off-center than the ones we got used to. Uh, That is the hard fact we're all, I think, trying to come uh, to grips with. Incidentally, uh, uh, Betty Friedan, who spoke, has also been the subject of a few biographies, and someday you ought to have a panel of the subjects of (laughs) (laughs) biographies. It's a good idea. No, I think that that I've never, no
4: one's written my biography, but I think it must, people have translated things that I've, into other languages, that languages that I happen to know, and it must feel in some ways the same, that your words are not your words, they're the same sort of words, but they, they're not the same, it doesn't mean the same thing, it doesn't have the same emotional charge or cultural significance. I'd like to
1: get in on that one too, because I thought that the question was addressed more specifically to the biographer's tendency to dislike her subject, or to, to uh, reproach her subject, and I think that that's a terribly interesting question to raise, because the fact is, the biographer is in the odd position, it really is odd, of probably, Eleanor alluded to this, of knowing more about the subject's life than the subject knows, and what goes along with that is, frequently, the feeling, why didn't she do it better? <laughs> Why didn't, she, you know, why didn't she see that thing coming? Why didn't she see that problem? Didn't she know he was going to leave her eventually? Because you know all these things. And so I think that, that the, the tendency to, to judgment, to be judgmental, that's I think the great pitfall in biography rather than uh, identification. I think you have to work very hard to be sympathetic to a subject.
0: Well, you mentioned a uh, knowing so much about the subject, Phyllis, and knowing even more than the subject knows. And I, uh, I always have felt quite the opposite, without having written one, of course. That, uh, and I, in fact, I think it's your book, Carolyn, when you say, and I've had the same thought. Imagine if somebody came to you now and began to write your biography, uh, and think of all the the phone calls and the crises and the secrets and all the things you've lived that are not documented. How much, especially now that we do use the phone uh, before the fax machine has taken over. Uh, how much could anybody ever know about your life? And I think it's. it's uh, I always wonder when I finish a biography uh, do I really know anything, or is this just a, a, a literary artifice, which is very fascinating? And as we've said, a novel composed by the biographer or about the biographer is seen through the prism of the subject. Uh, I, I marvel, I, I must uh, give my tribute to all of you that you do it with such. Bear or spare materials, and, and know so little. Yeah, that's true too. If you knew more, you probably couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, let's have one more question. I think our time is almost up. Yes. Seem to be the one, uh, <laughs> Carolyn, to to answer this. I the question was you um, no please the question was for young people who are just discovering uh, the, the new feminist language. Uh, I I'm I'm sorry I'm, I'm failing at this. Uh, why don't you just say your question? Aloud? It's uh, <laughs> What news stories stories shall we tell in this language and and whom shall we look to for models? Is that it? What what can we, or Carolyn, teach you?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Teach you from? Uh, Well, I do believe very powerfully. It is always said by all feminist critics in the world I move in most of the time that language has failed women, and of course the French are more severe about this than we are because it's a male language. Let me just stop for a moment. Since I've spent this last semester teaching in law school, let me give you an example of what I mean, uh, the way language can change. There are four new terms I think of at the moment that have come into legal language within the last few years. Those terms are sexual harassment, date rape, child abuse, and battered women. Now I think that every woman has experienced some of these, all of them, knows about them. We, none of us, there was no language in which to talk about that. Uh, We, now that that language is there, and therefore in the law, women are in a way empowered. But it's more than that, I think, because the other thing we learn in law is that when we look simply at the decision or even at the briefs, we miss the stories behind these cases. And when these stories come out and we all learn them, I think that at least young people today can be empowered with narratives, both of what might happen, which they will refuse to countenance, and what might happen that they will dare to do. So it's both finding words for experience where there have not been words, and finding narratives where there have not been narratives. And I think biography more and more will be able to do that. That answer may sound simplistic, but we've got a bit of a way to go with it.